Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. You're preaching tonight a sermon I preached most most of the uh, most of it to my sermon my soldiers in the beginning of this month. Often I preach my drill sermons at the same time concurrently, but just the way that we had the preaching schedule, I decided to delay it till tonight. Let's begin with prayer. Father, now we come before your word and we confess that all of it, Old Testament as well as new, is your word and it is full of Christ and his glory. And so would you show us your mercy now? Would you move us, even as we have already sung, to love and to adore you and to be changed through worship? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like second chances? You like to be given a second chance something? Dale Carnegie, in his How to Win Friends and Influence People, tells a story about a well-known stunt pilot, I believe in the 50s, and he flew all kinds of aircraft, so jets as well as some of the, the high-performance prop planes back then. And he had a mechanic who, who serviced his planes, and he was, he was going up for a, a flight, and his mechanic filled up the plane. And as he was climbing, he realized something was not right with his, his plane. I believe it was a propeller plane that he was flying at the time. And what had happened was the mechanic had put jet fuel in the, in the propeller plane. It was enough that it was able to take off and gain some altitude, but the engine quickly seized and the plane plummeted to the ground, was destroyed. Fortunately, he was able to parachute and, and, and was unscathed. Now put yourself in the mechanic's place. <laughs> you'd be sick and you'd be waiting there expecting to get canned at the very best. And so the stunt pilot comes back in and he looks at his tech and he says, George, you made a mistake. Anyone could do that. Any human could do that. I know you're a good technician. I'm sure from now on you will be very careful when you fuel my plane. Now, now what did he do there? Um, He gave him a second chance and probably had an extremely loyal and diligent mechanic for the rest of his time there. A second chance is a new chance at life. Sometimes, in extreme cases, a pardon, it is literally a new chance to live. And we're going to go back to a passage tonight of second chances. And it's really not just a second chance, but a new beginning. And this sermon came to me as I was studying God's word in the morning. And it's just one of those times where um, I was was actually reading through Exodus, uh, chapter by chapter. And if you're familiar with Exodus, it can be a bit of a long haul at some points. And so I was just praying, Lord, show me your glory. And, and this is how he spoke to me. And in fact, I, I'll read Exodus 41 through 2 now. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible second chance. At first, it was very fuzzy, but then God struck me. This is an incredible act of mercy. There it is. Now, if you just dip into those 
two sentences, that might not be very clear to you. And it took a little while for me, but I had been reading through the book of Exodus. And I wanted to just give you a very quick movement of the book of Exodus to show you what an incredible second chance that was. Now, this is a story of Israel, right? Israel was the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they were supposed to be, these people were supposed to be the new Adam, the new humanity that were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and, and live as priest kings, as Adam and Eve were supposed to do, and create a new land, a new Eden. But, of course, Israel comes to Egypt during the time of the famine, where Joseph had wisely stewarded the provisions to save the whole known world. And, and we start then, in the beginning of Exodus, Israel is being fruitful and multiplying, just like Genesis, right? There's those Genesis echoes. And, but what this does is it, it concerns the king of Pharaoh. He becomes afraid of them. He enslaves them for 400 years. And so they groan and they cry out to God. And at just the right time, he raises up a champion, Moses, who challenges the current Pharaoh, right? That you know about the clash between Moses and Pharaoh. It's actually more of a clash between God and Pharaoh, Right? Moses brings plagues on Egypt. God leads them out with a, a pillar of fire at night and smoke by day. He splits the Red Sea. They, they go through. He, he brings it crashing down on Pharaoh's army. Two things important to note about that exodus that, that come to our, our passage here. First of all, the plagues on Egypt were about, it's not just cool displays of fireworks, but just demonstrating that God is God and no one else. Right? Pharaoh was believed to be God or God-like. That's how the people viewed him. He was a God. And in fact, each one of the plagues, in addition to being very unpleasant, showed the futility of the Egypt God, Egyptian gods. They, they worshipped the sun god and the river god. Well, Moses put curses on both of them, and they couldn't stop them. Pharaoh, this god, had enslaved Israel. They had to serve this Pharaoh. The message now is that Yahweh, I am, is God. That's the first thing that's important. The other thing is that this exodus, this liberation, was meant to be a freedom to serve God as Israel was supposed to do. When Moses first started his showdown with mighty Pharaoh, he gave God's message this way. Let my people go that they can serve me. That word serve can also mean worship. Right, why is this important? Well, we'll see in a moment, but you, this is very different than the way we view self-fulfillment today, isn't it? Today the message is, be true to yourself. Discover yourself. Create your own identity. Now, in serving God, there is a lot of place for creativity and expression. But the Bible says, actually, no, you will be much more free when you live in humble relationship with the giving, loving God who created you to know and love him. And so God performs these mighty acts of power. He wipes out the army of the superpower of the known world. He brings his people out to Mount Sinai. That's a mountain where, where God will meet with his people. He proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the one true God. And he brings his people out of bondage so that they can be free to worship him. But then disaster strikes. Right? God calls Moses up to the mountain and he gives his people the laws that tell his people how to love and serve him. And he talks about the tabernacle, that mobile tent where the presence of God would dwell in a special way. It symbolized God dwelling with his people. Those law and tabernacle are two precious things. 
And Moses has gone a long time. It's 40 days. And in fact, if you were reading Exodus, a chapter a day, you would also think that Moses has gone a long time. Because from chapter 19 to 31, you get details and details and details about the law and the tabernacle. But why, why so much time? It's, it's expressing the relationship, how to love and obey God, that he's going to be present with you. While Moses is gone, the people get restless. Turn to Exodus 32. Moses has now been up for 40 days and 12 or 13 chapters. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up, Out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them. They make a golden calf and they worship that as their deliverer. So here's the disaster. God brought them out of slavery to worship him, to love him, to serve them. And they do the exact opposite thing. The first chance they get. God's rightly angry. He threatens to destroy his people. Today, this might seem to many people like no big deal. You know, God, you're so petty. It's just, it's just a metal object. But if our whole purpose in life is to enjoy God and to reflect his glory through obedience, then when you give that worship to something else than the true God, he's dishonored and you're dissatisfied. Worship is central. It's, it reflects what we think is most important. And so just like a, a wife is rightfully jealous of a husband with a roving eye, or a husband is rightly jealous of an overly flirtatious wife, God is rightly jealous for humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, to love and serve him the most. This is a disaster. God rescues his people from slavery so they can be free to worship him, but they file for divorce and they give their hearts to other fake gods. And they stand in danger of his righteous anger. At this point, Moses steps into the gap. He he pleads for God's people on their behalf. God relents. He holds back his judgment. Many people again think that God is a moody old grandfather. You know, Moses just badgers him enough and God finally says, all right, all right, I'll lighten up. Right? That's, that's not what happens. God allows Moses to serve as the mediator who stands in the place of sinners. And Mo- Moses argues on the basis of God's mercy. He doesn't say, just God, just you know, take a chill pill. Look at verse 11 in chapter 32. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Basically, Moses is saying, yes, this is what the people deserve. But God, be who you are for your glory. Do what you promised for your people. He's arguing with God for his own sake. And so God, in his mercy, relents and he gives him a people, his people, a new law. 
Moses had broken the tablets in anger, the law that symbolized the relationship with God. And so God gives them new tablets. That's a sign of his relationship again. And he gives them the tabernacle again. That's the sign of his presence with them. And again, if you're reading through Exodus chapter by chapter, this this next part can again be tough sledding because as you go through chapter 30 and on, and we'll move back to chapter 40, you will see once again a, a description of the tabernacle being constructed. And it goes in repetitive, almost excruciating detail, much of which has already been repeated in the previous 13 chapters. Say, what's going on here? Especially in the days, time when it took days to write script and and space was precious. Why why would you do this? It is reflecting in wonder that God has made a place, that he will live with his people. And that though God's people don't deserve it, he gives them a new beginning. He gives them a new start. I find displays of mercy quite moving, especially when it's done towards me, right? When, when someone um, relieves me from the consequences that I deserve in life, it melts my heart. Here God is allowing them to build the tabernacle. But there's one little detail in this chapter that I think is even more moving, and that's what I caught when I read chapter 40. When are they to construct the tabernacle? God says, chapter 40, verse 2, on the first day of the first month. That's significant. Do you know what's so important about the first month? The first month is when the Passover happened. The Exodus happened the first month. In fact, in Exodus 12, which begins the Passover, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Day one, beginning of the year, marks the exodus. Later on in time, they would celebrate the Passover on the 15th day. It doesn't say in chapter 12, but they may very well have celebrated it on the first day of the first month because they were going out of Egypt. So I was reading that and I thought, well, that's interesting. How long has passed since... um, Chapter from chapter 12 to chapter 40. Well, if you read later on, it's been exactly one year. It's the anniversary of God taking his people out of slavery to serve and love them. So get this. God delivers them. They file for divorce and go away. He brought them out to the desert and he spurned them. But then in his Mercy, he draws them back. And he says, I love you. Here's a new beginning. Here's my law. Here's my tabernacle. And when do they put it up? God says, oh, by the way, put it up on the first day of the first month. The anniversary of my salvation for you. Put it up on the anniversary of your deliverance. You know, it's almost like you were married to someone you love very much. I'll just use she since I'm a man. And one day, you have an affair with someone else. And your wife finds out. She confronts you. And in a moment of madness, you take off your ring, you throw it at her, you say, I'm done, and you leave. 
and you go live with the other person. But you find out that the grass is not greener on the other side. In fact, they're not really wonderful, as wonderful as they think they are, and they leave you for someone else. You realize, what a fool I've been. And you go back to your spouse or wife and say, take me back. Well, at that point, they would have full rights to say, I'm filing for divorce. But instead, she says, give me a few days to think about it. And a few days later, you're at your apartment. And it just happens to be your anniversary. And there's a knock on the door. And she's there. And, and all the memories of your wedding come back. And you see her coming down the aisle and all your beauty, her beauty and all the promises you've made and all the ways you have wrecked those promises and that you don't deserve her. And she's quiet for a moment. And she says, I forgive you. And then she hands you back a ring. But it's not your wedding band. It's a new band. It's actually more beautiful than the one before. And she says, this is yours. This belongs to you. That's what God's doing here when he sets up the tabernacle on the anniversary, the place which shows my presence. The year after I delivered you from slavery, I'm still yours. And I'm not going away. And I will dwell with you. Well, this is a beautiful story. But what does it have to do with us? It was told to a people a long time ago. Well, it tells us the character of our God. God gave Israel a, a new start with the tabernacle. But you know what? The tabernacle was not enough. The sign of God's presence wasn't enough to keep things right. If you read the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be the new Adam. But they just couldn't stay faithful. What they needed was someone who would come and do it for them. That's what the Christmas story is about. Once again, God could have said after his nation was kicked out of the land, after they come back and they struggle with unfaithfulness and uncleanness. And he said, I could have said again, I am done with you. It's over. Instead, he offers another start. And that beautiful declaration that the Apostle John says in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And God, as the second person of the Trinity, takes on human nature in Jesus. And the significance is monumental. You know, the, the verb there in John 1.14, the Word became flesh, and dwelled, it's the same word for tented, tabernacled, Jesus literally tabernacled among us. The glory of God that shone through that Old Testament tent is here in an infinitely better way. Jesus comes himself to live with us. You can revisit that wedding parable, but put us in there with God. Each one of us has said to God at some point in our life, I am done. I don't want anything to do with you. God's made us in his image, and we want to rip that off and be our own God. There is a sense in which we've, we've thrown the ring at God and gone somewhere else. But Jesus stands and offers each one of you, come to me. Come to me, put your faith in me. I will be your faithful husband. I am your tabernacle. I am the true temple. I am where you experience God's presence. And what happened at the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the place where people offered their sacrifices to forgive their sin, to forgive their spiritual adultery. 
And what does Jesus do as the true tabernacle? He lives that perfect life and dies in the place where we should have, bearing the weight of God's wrath. He is the better mediator than Moses. He offers prayer for us, but he also offers us his life. And we started by talking about second chances. But with the Holy God, you and I need more than a second chance. If Jesus' cross work was just coming and picking us up out of the mud and making us clean and say, okay, great, go ahead, don't do that again, we'd be right back there the next day. We need more than a hand up out of the pit. We need a Savior who will win us for him at the cost of his life. And what you see in the Exodus is a picture of what God does for those who trust in Jesus. He delivers you from the desires that trap you, from alcohol, from envy, from lust, from all the other prides and greed that can consume you. And he frees you to serve him and become what you were made to be. One of my favorite verses in John, Jesus says, 1421, whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then he says, we will come and make our home in them. If you look at the rest of the theology of John, it's clear that you keep God's law and love him because God has forgiven you, not the other way around. That would be, that would be unbearable. And that's the beauty of a new beginning. So what do you do with this? Well, first of all, when you, when you experience, see how, how God in his mercy comes and overflowing in his forgiveness. Well, first of all, you have to ask, do you have this? Do you have this new start? You, you can't get it by working your way to God. You can't get it by making yourself clean. You can't get it by freeing yourself from the bondage that you're in. You can't earn God's grace. But he gives it to you in Jesus if you submit and ask. So have you confessed? Young people? Old people? Do you have this new start? But then let's revel in God's mercy. Let the beauty of God's mercy overwhelm you. Think about how different God's mercy is from the normal way we humans do forgiveness. The tenderness of reaffirming his love on the very day when the people knew that they blew it. When someone hurts you, there is always a temptation to hurt them back, even if you forgive them, right? Um, I'll I'll welcome you back, but I'm going to remind you from time to time of what you did. I'm going to drop subtle hints, maybe a a few reminders, or especially every year, I expect a little groveling, right? That's human forgiveness. But God does the exact opposite. You didn't live up to your salvation. Build the tabernacle the sign of my presence on the day of your deliverance. Let there be no doubt that I am your God. The psalmist says in 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. This is our God. Tonight, let that good news catch you off guard, overwhelm you. And even now, you know, there are times when you're going to run away from him. Remember, he is yours. When you come back, he hands you back your ring and says, this is yours. Do you know one practical way that we receive the confirmation of, of God's 
presence and grace to us. We experienced it this morning in the Lord's Supper. Right? That sign and seal is God's promise. I am yours. There's nothing that can take you away from me. So tonight, revel in God's mercy. Don't let Jesus' life and death for you become ordinary. Recognize it for the heart-rending gift of mercy that it is to you. And then as you think about the joy of your new beginning, show God's mercy to others. I'm not going to spend much time here, but just think about this. If this is how God has treated you, going out of his way and overflowing generosity and sympathy and compassion, how much more should you treat others this way? You know, it, it really hurts to forgive, to forgive the other person and to bear the offense. But if there has been true reconciliation, a person has, has really truly repented, that's the way of the gospel, to forgive them without paying back. And isn't it true that when you forgive other people and you take the cost, that you go back to God for grace and you receive a bigger vision of what God has done for yourself? Praise God that we serve not a God just of second chances, but of new beginnings. Let's pray.